Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Well, hello and welcome, everyone. You've made it to another exciting episode of Two Bulls in a China Shop. I'm Shopkeeper Dan. With me, as always, is Kyle, creator of FinancialIneptitude.com. How are you doing today, Kyle? I am excited. We've got a fantastic guest lined up for today. All right. Yeah. Well, why don't you introduce him? Oh, I thought you were doing that part now. Okay. Uh, Ian Frazier. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Ian Frazier, the uh, best-selling author, can I say that, of uh, Shredded, the uh, story of the bank that broke Britain. Hi. Can we say, can we call you a bestseller? Book is You're a bestseller, bestseller right? but yeah, I don't know if I'm, yeah. 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 <laughs> I think you get that. Okay, we'll give you that you. title. <laughs> it's not as good as a knighthood, but you know, we'll do what we can for you. How are you doing, Ian? I'm really well. I'm I'm sitting here in Scotland, and I'm uh, looking forward to this chat. Um, I wrote the book Shredded Inside RBS: The Bang That Broke Britain. In well, I started it in 20, 2012. Um, I finished writing it in mm -hmm. 2014, and the, then I had a rewrite. Well, not a rewrite. I, I produced it totally revised and updated edition in 2019 because there's been a lot of things that have happened in the intervening five years or so. So it's been a labor of love, um, if that's the right way of putting it. I bet. <laughs> or a labor of hate, even. It's almost like peeling an onion, it seems like, with this story. Like, the, the deeper you go, the deeper it keeps going. That's right. I mean, one of the, I mean, the bank is much more stable now than it was. Um, it went through after it was bailed out and rescued with what I think was the largest um, bailout of any bank in the world in 2008. It was pretty sort of unstable mm -hmm. and, you know, yo-yoing around and there were lots of outstanding court cases and there was lots of management changes and things like that. But it does seem to be slightly more stable now, but it's a pale shadow of its former self because it was the largest bank in the world by assets in 2008 at the time of its collapse. And it's now about 30, mm. it's below 30th in the world by assets. So it's really shrunk, you know, it's shrunk um, a lot in the past 12, 14 years, largely just by, you know, selling assets and disposing parts of itself, including most of its U.S. operations. I was actually kind of surprised that so many different foreign banks operate in other countries. Like, to me, that seems like uh, they almost, I don't know, I wouldn't feel comfortable as an American having my money, you know, in the hands of Chinese bankers, for you know, as an example. I think Europeans are more used to it. You know, we have, we, we have this th thing called the European Union, and within that, banks have operated quite freely in other countries. So, mm -hmm. you know, for example, I know bank with a Swedish bank called Handelsbanken because I know I know it's pretty solid and reliable, well capitalized, etc. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, RBS clearly did face problems when it was trying to expand in the US because Americans aren't very used to using 
banks that are, that aren't um, American owned. I was gonna say, yeah, but we have other banks, not just uh, RBS that has a footprint or had a footprint here. I think uh, like HBSC, isn't that a, a Hong Kong owned? Yeah, HSBC, which is Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. Uh, possibly one of the most evil banks in the world. It was actually founded in Hong Kong. I remember they got busted for drug money. That's right. They, they had a 1.9 billion settlement uh, to avoid being shut down by the US authorities in 20, when was it, 20, 2012 or something like that. But um, Really? Yeah, mm-hmm. but they're actually UK headquartered now. Um, mm-hmm. They moved their headquarters from Hong Kong to the UK in uh, 1990, in the early 1990s, when they took over a UK bank called Midland. Um, but yeah, that that's got a really appalling record of um, you know fueling tax evasion, fueling, <laughs> uh, facilitating dr- drug cartels in Mexico, and um, facilitating money laundering and it hasn't you know even though is that the next book well i don't know i don't know if i could face (laughs) hsbc but who knows that then there's still there's a possibility well let's uh let's we took a little segue there let's get back to the the rbs story (laughs) i i haven't finished the book yet so i'm excited to learn how uh you know they get their comeuppance and they pay back all that bailout money and all these people went to jail uh, yes, I wish. Um, oh, what? That didn't happen? <laughs> uh, God damn it. <laughs> uh, the reality was that the the board who was in charge of RBS at the time of its OA collapse, um, you know, mainly left with their wealth more or less intact. So they had very large pensions, you know, oh, in some cases up, up to a million dollars a year in pension money coming in. And uh, they were, they were, there was not much clawback, or very, there was no clawback of past bonuses. We had a very weak regulatory establishment. Really? Yeah, a very weak regulatory establishment here in the UK who, who just kind of slapped them over the knuckles and said they'd made a few mistakes, <laughs> allowed them to waltz off in the sun, into the sunset with their swag bags intact. So, Jesus. Yeah, the, about the only punishment that, um, well, there were two main punishments that I can think of, one of which was that. The chief executive, Sir Fred Goodwin, had his knighthood um, removed mm. by the British government. Um, the the honours. Do they do that with a sword? Uh, I don't think so. But it was. Um, yes. <laughs> it was the honours forfeiture committee. Was um, doesn't doesn't sit very often, but it sat, and they decided they were going to relieve him of his knighthood, and that happened, I think, in January 2012. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happened was one guy called Johnny Cameron, who was the head of the investment bank, he, he was formally censured by the Financial Services Authority, which was the then regulator, since changed his name. And he was, um, he was told he wasn't, he wasn't allowed to have any other high-level roles in the financial sector. But uh, apart from that, I can't think of anyone being punished. Fred Goodwin did actually voluntarily hand back some of his pension. He was due to receive about 700 thousand pounds per annum as pension for life mm-hmm. but uh, there was not, was not uproar about that in early 2009 and uh, a lot of pressure there was no legal way that you could have forced him to hand back uh, some of the pension but he, he did voluntarily agree to hand back um 
about half. So it came down to £340,000 per Oh, that's nice of him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he kept all the other money that he made too. Yeah. It, it, it was a mark of incredible decency on his part. Yes. At least his stock options were worthless. That's true. The stock options were, were pretty much worthless. And um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want to know about more about Fred Goodwin now, but you know, then we could discuss that later. Yeah. Well, well, now he, uh, you know, he 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 has suffered a loss of face. Obviously, you know, he was mm-hmm. baited as the as the guy who had transformed a, a provincial bank into the largest bank in the world by assets um, in the space of uh, eight years between two thousand and two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. So he was lauded, you know, in Edinburgh society and in London society. And internationally, as this great, you know, God's gift to banking, who 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 was supposedly doing everything right. Mm-hmm. So you know that all went to his head, and he he uh, he he could easily meet the prime minister or the president or the uh, central bank governor of whichever country he he visited. So you know he's gone from that to being basically a pariah, and he lives more or less as a recluse in Edinburgh. With all his millions, yeah, I'm sure. I, I would if the show ever gets canceled. That's the fate I hope I have to endure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take my money and go home. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not the end of the world for him. I yeah, I, he, I think he's doing just fine. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we talked a little bit about Goodwin. I, I want to talk a little bit more about Matheson because I think he was kind of the one who who sort of kicked off the uh, the path that the the bank kind of went down. He thinks he rescued RBS from near collapse in 1991, mm-hmm. when it was essentially, well, not bust, but it was in it was it was in danger of having to um, axe its dividend, which at that time was pretty much the same as being bust if you if you were a yeah. bank. And um, he he basically, I say, picked it up by the scruff of its neck and gave it a really good kicking, <laughs> and he sacked about a hundred or two hundred of the top three hundred staff. In a light, in a what's been called a night of the long knives, mm-hmm. and he retained the people who he thought were more dynamic and entrepreneurial and younger and more more interested in uh, in selling. And so, he, you know, he did do what might be deemed to be some good things. He he put it back on a path to profitability, and he embarked on this thing called Project Columbus, which was all about um, uh, making the bank more efficient, introducing better mm-hmm. computers. Um, axing or computers at all? No, right? Weren't they still doing everything on paper? Well, they did have some, but they were pretty primitive. So yeah, computers at all, and it was also about um, basically transforming the branch network. In the old days, the branches were like mini fiefdoms, and the individual manager of that branch or region mm-hmm. had a lot of control over who he lent to, and it was usually a man who who they lent mm-hmm. to. And uh, understood their local community, so there was a sort of old-fashioned way of doing banking, which revolved around understanding your community right. and understanding their ability to repay loans and all that sort of stuff. But um, Matthewson got rid of that. He got rid of the you know the grey-haired um, and quite powerful local branch managers and local regional managers, and I would say hollowed out the branches and made them um, more like sales outposts. Mm-hmm. And this was quite early. Bank banking, you know, he was one of the first bank chief executives to do this and in- encourage uh, cross selling, which meant that if someone already had a current account, you've got to sell them other products like it could be insurance, could be deposit accounts, it could be um, car loans, or you know, right. So it's all about 
hucksterism and selling your existing customer base more products and trying to be make the bank more profitable that way. So there was nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I think it set a a sort of a mindset within RBS, which um, which probably to some extent helped to sow the seeds of the trouble that it had uh, later on in the 2000s. I really feel like the those effects are being felt like still today. Like uh, I don't know how many letters I get from my bank asking me about refinancing or moving all my my IRA over to them, or like it just feels like they're all just always trying to sell to me now. Whereas before, mm-hmm. I used to be a customer. Now I'm a product almost. Yes, I think this is it's a sad development within banking, probably worldwide, but certainly in the US and UK. Mm-hmm. Um, that basically they just see you as a product, as you say, a product. Something that well, something that they can sell more products to in order to to boost their shareholder their shareholder value. So I, I do say in the book that you know the the and I'm sure this has affected all banks, but there was a sort of change that happened in about the 70s uh, under Milton Friedman and the Chicago School, which was all about that that companies' sole purpose was to enrich their shareholders and enrich their their ownership base. And mm-hmm. I think from that um, flowed a multitude of sins, one of which was the banks basically, if they see their sole objective as being to enrich their shareholders, they tend to go for short-term maneuvers, which will boost shareholder value in the short term, and which might be harmful to staff, or they might be harmful to customers, or harmful to society, or harmful to the environment, because they've been told that doesn't matter. Right. They've been told the only thing that matters is, you know, boosting the share price. So I'd even say that's not just, you know, an issue in the banking industry. That's pretty much any publicly traded company. Yeah. I think by law, they're, you know, they're required to try to do things that, you know, enrich shareholder value, at least in the U.S. Yes, I think I think it is. It's widespread across the whole business, the whole world of business and uh, listed companies in particular. Mm-hmm. In certain banks, I think it just drove more egregious behavior. But I think with RBS, Uh the other thing was because it was basically a mid-sized UK bank, it was terrified of being taken over when consolidation started in the 90s. Mm. And they they had this mantra, which was, um, you either eat or be eaten. And so, you know, the fact you're a mid-sized bank in a a mid-sized country like the UK the chances are that you would be eaten, as in taken over by JP Morgan or taken over by Citibank or taken over by mm-hmm. uh, Barclays or Lloyds, one of the English banks, or um, or even HSBC. So they decided that to, to avoid um, that fate, they would have to eat themselves, as in grow by, by acquisition and take over other banks. Mm-hmm. And they tried throughout the 90s to basically acquire other banks in the UK, but they constantly failed to achieve what they wanted because they got basically gazumped or I don't know if you use that word. They got outbid by rivals such as Lloyd's mm-hmm. and, um, and and the guy running it was to some extent quite cautious. You know, he didn't want to overpay for other banks and that guy was George Matheson. But, but then what happened um, basically after they did manage to secure the takeover of a bank three times their size, National Westminster Bank, in uh, March 2000, uh, yeah. they sort of uh, believed they, they, they could just continue to grow by acquisition and it didn't matter how good or bad the bank that they bought was. So the obsession with growth, it was almost like there was an obsession with growth at all costs and right. shareholders and analysts were not vigilant enough in monitoring this. And um, they did make you know some good acquisitions, but they also made some 
appalling acquisitions after NetWest, one of which was Charter One, which was an, an Ohio-based um, bank. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if, you, if you've heard of it, but... Um, I've heard of Charter, but uh, I know there's a Charter Steel that's a steel company. I don't know if they're related. I don't think so. No, Char- Charter One was a, or is a bank based in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, RBS bought that for about 10.6 billion US dollars in 2014. But they didn't really bother to do their due diligence, and the bank had a lot of subprime like uh, lending on its books, and ultimately proved to be worth less than two billion. So they actually, you know, overpaid by by at least five times when they bought that bank in the US. Um, it was all part of growing their Citizens Financial Corporation division, which was headquartered in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And Citizens was a bank which RBS had owned since '88, and they they'd grown it through a series, an incredible series of acquisitions of um, of failed thrifts and um, other other banks which they picked up quite cheaply from '92 uh, all the way through to. Well, all the way through to 2007, yeah, um, or certainly, yeah, there was a there was a period of about you know nearly a decade and a half when they were growing citizens by buying small regional banking groups and bolting them on and rebranding those as citizens. Mm-hmm. But again, they, I, I think there was a problem that they didn't do sufficient due diligence, due diligence on some of these deals, and they were just obsessed with the scale and the glory of you know of uh, basically snapping up uh, foreign banks. During your research, did you ever figure out why they didn't do a comprehensive due diligence? Uh, as I think that really kind of you know came back to bite them when they did the ABN deal and they kept referring to the NatWest acquisition. We're just doing it like that. We're doing yes. what they call a due diligence light. Yes, but <laughs> light. <laughs> when you're spending that you know, $10 billion, why the hell are you not pouring over the books and protecting yourself? It does seem very, very odd. And I do think the NatWest... <laughs> I think the NatWest deal it was partly responsible for that mm-hmm. because they um, they believed they had m- made such cost savings in the wake of the acquisition of NatWest through sacking eighteen thousand employees and uh, crunching together um, operation operating networks and consolidating IT and all that sort of stuff that it didn't really matter if they'd slightly overpaid for NatWest. Because the cost savings that, that flowed out of that were so mm-hmm. um, uh, big, they 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 paid. You know, they almost paid for this slight overpayment for that they may have made for for Now West. But I think this sort of mantra was that you know we're su- we're such good consolidators. We're the best at consolidating in the world. We're recognised as as such by Harvard Business School, who did a case study on the NatWest deal. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, <laughs> you still need to look at the books to know where you can save. Well, exactly. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, I'm sure, they, I'm sure they did do due diligence light, light on most of the deals, on all the right. deals they did. But the trouble was it was it was too light. Yeah. And it, it is it, it is something which I don't even to this day fully understand, but I think it partly arose from arrogance that that they felt mm. they were they were just the you know, God's gift to bank consolidation, God's gift to banking mergers, and they they'd been praised so ha- so highly over the Now West, the way Now West had panned out, that they thought, Oh well, doesn't a slight overpayment won't matter. A slight overpayment, maybe. <laughs> like with the charter deal, like you overpay by five times. That's, that's yeah. kind of hard to come back from. And with ABN AMRO, the Dutch bank, you know, they, yeah. Yeah, so so to kind of give the listeners a, a broader picture of what we're talking about, 
in what was it 2007 the Royal Bank of Scotland made this acquisition deal full of subprime debt that just completely tanked the stock yeah. completely tanked the company they, yeah. I believe they actually ran out of money at one point yes well it was an extraordinary acquisition and I, and again it was partly driven by Fred Goodwin's obsession with scale because Barclays was also trying to take over ABN AMRO and Barclays which is a rival UK bank had already made an offer uh, which I think had been provisionally accepted by the board of ABN AMRO. But this, this was just um, very irksome to Fred because if that had happened, if this had happened, Barclays would have leapfrogged over RBS and become bigger than it again. And he, he didn't want that to happen. So one of the reasons he wanted, he was so desperate to buy it was to avoid that scenario um, occurring. But what he also did, was which was incredibly unwise, was to offer to pay 90% of the 100 billion US dollar purchase price of ABN AMRO in cash right. and borrow that on the short-term interbank lending market. So this was basically ultimately what killed RBS because the bank ended up with a £160 billion funding gap uh, between its deposits and its, it, had, it, it ended up with, 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 with a £160 billion funding gap. And uh, the, you know when, when markets froze and they started to freeze with, when the credit crisis first really made itself felt mm-hmm. in July two thousand seven, and obviously it completely froze in September on September the fourteenth or fifteenth two thousand and eight with the Lehman Brothers collapse. Mm. Basically, RBS uh, couldn't couldn't survive after from that moment on. So. Yeah, his decision to pay ninety uh, percent of the purchase price in cash was was an absolute disaster. It's, it's just mind boggling the numbers and the figures that you're talking about. Like, uh, like how does something get to be this big? Yeah, well, and be that reckless at the same time. It is hard to believe because um, you know, even though Citigroup and Merrill Lynch and Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers were doing crazy stuff in the subprime market, and they they all you know. Needed needed bailouts themselves to some extent with with TAR. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't doing anything quite as crazy as what RBS was doing with its ABN AMRO acquisition. And in fact, there is a chart which um, the Financial Times produced soon after RBS collapsed in two thousand and nine, and it it was like a Venn diagram of all the things that any bank could do wrong in terms of you know weak capital, in terms of, of crazy deals, in terms of exposure to subprime. And RBS was right at the center. It had basically done everything, every single thing. <laughs> I can send you that if you want. I'm trying uh, to find it right now. As you're <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to find because it was like FT chart from a while back and it was fine. But uh, I can probably yeah, send me that because we'll, I'm going to post that on the website when we uh, yeah, upload this. Definitely. So it, it is extraordinary. And um, that's one of the reasons why it was fun, a fun book to write because, you know, the bank really had, it almost like it had pulled out all the stops to do, to, 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 to do as many things wrong as it could. Yeah, you were able to actually talk to some of these people too when you were uh, doing the research for this book. Uh, how many of them didn't want to be named just out of curiosity? Well, I think I... I think I spoke to about 120 people, mm-hmm. and they varied from senior board, board directors and ex-board directors of RBS right down to, you know, corporate lending managers or uh, much people more, more low down in the hierarchy, and also to investment bank advisors who used to work, who used to advise the board of RBS. But I'd say of those people, of those 120 people, there was only about five who were prepared to talk on the record about. Oh, uh, wow. 115 
uh, was were too nervous to do so and preferred to talk um, off the record, as we call it, i.e. Mm-hmm. being named. So, yeah, m- not many people were particularly proud of what, what, what the bank had achieved or uh, willing, <laughs> willing to go public uh, about it. Um, I was grateful to those who did. You know, I think yeah. I, I named them in the acknowledgements because, you know, they, it makes it would have been much nicer if I had more people who were willing to go on the record. But sadly, there were only that number. And, um, you know, I was very grateful to those that did. Yeah, it's a tale that kind of needs to be told. And yeah, getting some of that firsthand account, I think, really makes the story better. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit like when Jared Bibler was doing his research as a uh, Jared Bibler, who wrote Iceland Secret, yeah. when he was doing his uh, investigation as a regulator in Iceland, you know, he found these jaw-dropping things. Like he discovered that um, the three Icelandic banks had been rigging their own share prices by hoovering up yeah. their own shares. <laughs> yeah, for, <laughs> yes. for immense, extraordinary. Like for immense periods of time, sometimes dating back to 1998 in the case of one bank. Right. So that's a whole 10 years, but between then and its collapse. I, I noticed that uh, when you said your bank with uh, somebody that's not, you know, in, in Scotland, it, it wasn't in Iceland. No, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I would never, I would never choose an Icelandic bank. I really wouldn't. <laughs> But, um, so, but, you know, as I was writing it, I just disco- discovered these new things and, you know, things like the performance management system or things like the way they, you know, they had, the, the board had repeatedly lied, even though they knew perfectly well they were heavily involved in subprime. They, they lied to their investors. They lied to the analysts. They lied to the regulators. So I just, you know, I, my jaw was dropping as I was researching it and writing it. Yeah, I uh, I was watching the the BBC documentary and they were playing the clips of uh, the board talking to investors and investors asking the very reasonable direct questions like you got any acquisitions going on like what's happening yes and and there's a you can you can actually find the shift where they start all like blinking like crazy they're shifting around and squirming in their seats and they're just bold face lying yes. over and over. At one point he even like looks into the camera to tell his lie. It, it, it was, it was like watching a bad eighties movie. Like <laughs> I, I can't believe this was reality was, in real life. No, that was quite extraordinary because basically Fred Goodwin had been told by investors that he had to stop making any further acquisitions after Charter One because it had been such a disaster. Mm-hmm. And, you know, investors were, were not pleased. You know, they're, they're meant to be stewards of other people's money, supposedly. They're, they're looking after funds which are invested on behalf of ordinary people or pension savers mm-hmm. or just ordinary investors. And so they, they have a duty to sort of, you know, kick the tires and prod the wheels or whatever of, of a company mm-hmm. that they're invested in. And, and they were really concerned about RBS. They were so concerned about RBS basically squandering money on me- megalomaniac type activity uh, <laughs> or, you know, self-aggrandizing activity, like just buying an American bank, which was worth actually five times less than they paid. And so they were. They, mm-hmm. they basically put Fred Goodwin in a box and said, "You must not do any more deals. You must. You have to go for what's called organic growth. Grow the grow the balance sheet organically by you know just en- enlarging your your activities from within, selling more loans mm-hmm. or whatever it might have been. Right. But not 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 through any more acquisitions. And you are banned from doing that. But at that that particular meeting you're talking about, 
they sensed that Fred Goodwin was already about to do another one, and he was about to buy a large stake in the Bank of China, um, based in Beijing. And you know, there, there was a lot of unrest uh, about that. But as you say, when when they said that, oh no, we're not planning any more deals. All those guys, that, that entire board was lying through their teeth. What about when they were talking about their, their exposure to the subprime loans? Were they flat out lying when they were saying that they had none or did they really not know? No, they, they were flat out lying because they, they, uh, the, yeah. they, they knew that, that RBS uh, was, was heavily engaged in uh, subprime mortgages through its Greenwich Capital division in, uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And this, this division was already boasting that it was a market leader in the origination, sales, and trading of asset-backed securities, which includes subprime. And this division had underwritten 188 billion of subprime mortgage-backed securities between 2003 and 2007. It was vying for the top slot with Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, and Citigroup. So basically, you know, it securitized up to 50 billion a year of subprime debt. So if the board didn't know that, then they shouldn't have been on the board. That was kind of the impression I got. But then the other thing I was wondering too is, I mean, I know in the US, like you have to publish your financial statements. Like, aren't these things that people should have been able to find, like looking through those statements that they have to file or no? Yeah, well, the bank was audited by a firm called Deloitte's. And um, there's this huge question mark over how thorough Deloitte was. I mean, Deloitte hasn't been penalized at all. Was it audit light? (laughs) Yes, it was audit light. (laughs) But there was a there was just a you know huge question mark over how vigilant that that audit firm was that um, Mm -hmm. big four audit firm was of what was going on. And yes, you do have to declare in your annual accounts uh, what you are doing. But you see, with subprime, I think they were able to fudge it because they weren't necessarily required to state that they were engaged in re- in repackaging subprime debt. They could just say it is um, RMBS, residential mortgage-backed securities, or they could just say uh-huh. ABS, asset-backed securities. But they were when they were specifically asked about subprime in several meetings in 2007, that, that that's when they they should have been you know they 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 should have been more honest right and particularly with the hong victor hong situation in uh, september to november 2007 he was trying to make the bank be honest about the valuations of the cdo of the um, CDOs that it had on its books, the top tier CDOs that it had on its books, and you know he he was determined that it should actually reflect the true as the true valuations of these things, which were about thirty percent, thirty dollars in sorry, thirty cents in the dollar. So if if they were valuing them at a hundred, they should have been valuing them at thirty cents, which is exactly what Merrill Lynch and Citigroup had already done that year. And so Hong was being entirely correct in his assessment. But uh, the guys at uh, RBS Granite, including the senior executives there, basically knew that if this happened, they were going to lose their bonuses for that year. So they dragged their heels and said, we're not going to accept um, Victor Hong's accurate valuations. We're going to pretend it's worth 90 cents in a dollar. And that was what was fed back to head office in Edinburgh. And the board sort of were perfectly happy to, to accept that. And so was Deloitte. So, you know, there were some real issues going on internally. But um, and this is why Victor Hong decided he basically had, had, had to resign because he didn't want to be associated with what could be deemed fraud. 
to be fraudulent. Wow. I mean, it's good to know that at least some people still have some sort of conscience. I've got these two sets of numbers. Yeah, one of them is going to make your bank seem as if it's bankrupt, and one of them is make, going to make it seem as if your bank's still highly successful. Which one will you Which pick? Which do I want to believe? Which <laughs> do I want to believe? It's, oh God, between between your book and uh, the one you referenced earlier, Jared Bibbler's, like, it's just astounds me, like the type of shenanigans that go on behind the scenes. Just to try to live one more day. <laughs> a giant bank. It is. It is. It's. It's actually really, really disturbing. Yeah. I mean, you do wonder. You do wonder whether similar things. I mean, Jared believes that similar things are happening. You know, could be happening anywhere in the world in any institution. I would say it's quite likely. Yeah. We just don't have. We don't have a strong enough culture of maybe of ethics within the financial sector, but we certainly don't have powerful enough uh, regulators. And we, we, we have politicians, certainly in this country, who are basically uninterested in banking or finance. And often there's a form of state capture because the banks give a lot of um, donations to the party that's in power here called the Conservative mm-hmm. Party. And that might just buy them some influence, or certainly does buy them some influence in terms of you know the, f- the shape of regulation. And you know, currently in the UK, even though we embarked on a regulatory race to the bottom in 2003 under Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, we've now we've now got the same thing happening under Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, who that's the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. Is there something wrong with Boris Johnson, by the way? In what way? He he just looks like he just got out of bed every time I see him. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I don't really know what's wrong with Boris Johnson. Well, I know there's a lot wrong with Boris Johnson. But, uh, I don't know physically. Yeah, you're right. He looks a, he looks a mess. His hair is a mess. He kind of looks a bit dopey, as if he's only just. Um, Woken up as you looks said. like he just woke up and like walked into the press conference straight out of bed. I respect that about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, with the world leader, I think you want a little more professionalism. People now think that Tony Blair was a disastrous prime minister, partly because he he pushed uh, George Bush to go in to go into the Iraq War in two thousand three. But you know, he, at least he knew how to present himself. But I mean, if you want other examples of the dishonesty, like in 2008, RBS needed cash. It was it was held below the waterline. It had to build up its capital reserves, which were depleted mm-hmm. because because of the crash, you know, because of the ongoing credit crisis. And um, it was worse in March when Bear Stearns collapsed. There was a kind of huge blip in credit markets in March 2008 when Bear Stearns collapsed. Mm-hmm. And had to be rescued. But uh, so they were told by the regulator here, which was the Financial Services Authority, they had to do a rights issue, i.e. tap their existing shareholders for money. And they had to raise as much as they possibly could. And so they launched a rights issue in April 2008. And they got a total of 12.5 billion sterling in raised from their existing investors. And these included a lot of small-time investors, a lot of whom worked for RBS. Because uh-huh. a lot of people who worked there bought shares in it because they believed in the bank. And the trouble was, when they did this, they basically committed a lot of what I would call sins of omission and sins of commission. Um, <laughs> in that basically, you know, they understated their exposure to, co- to toxic credit derivatives. Mm-hmm. They understated their short-term funding requirement. They have to issue a prospectus, which is like three or 400 pages document which is rubber stamped by law, by top law firms to to raise this money. By the way, when you're doing a, a, a rights issue and issuing new shares, either in an IPO or an ongoing rights issue, 
you have to do a prospectus, which is a very critical legal document. But they neglected, also in that, they neglected to mention that the 10.9 billion cash payment from the sale of La Salle had been delayed. And that was a US bank, which um, they didn't get. Um, They neglected to mention that RBS's core tier one capital had fallen to as little as 3.6% in April 2008. Hmm. They neglected to mention the bank had breached or was close to breaching its individual capital guidance under Basel rules. They played down all the problems they were having with the ABN AMRO integration. They failed to acknowledge the fact that ABN AMRO was overvalued on RBS's books. Mm -hmm. And they failed to admit the inadequacies of RBS's back office risk management and controls. And they failed to admit that RBS had an incomplete knowledge of its own financial position. So all these things, there were about 10 things I listed then. You know, if that had been admitted in the prospectus, I doubt these investors would have handed over $12.5 billion of their own money to no. RBS in order to, that the bank <laughs> could, could continue to exist. And, and by the way, that, that money had gone to zero within about five months. I was going to say... Uh... That was in April 2008 that they announced the, the rights issue. I think you said they collected, what, about $12 billion? Yeah, just, just over. And then in August of 2008, they still managed to report a half-year loss of $691 million? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Is that including that $12 billion that they collected? Because that's insanity to me. That $690 million loss for the first half, it was more on operations rather than on what they'd raised in in capital okay but even so it it was it was a bad sign yes and by uh for the full year of 2008 they made the largest loss in uk financial history 28 billion sterling so you know and and all the people including small investors including you know mid-level and low-level staff with an rbs who basically had been bullied to invest in the rights issue by their managers and had been offered soft loans by the bank to invest in the rights issue. Oh my God. Ended up finding that the money they, they put into it was worth nearly zero. So I think that's, I think that this was a terrible crime, actually. I think of all the things yeah, that the- RBS did, this was one of the worst. You know, basically what they did was that the investors tried to sue RBS to try and get some money back. And RBS used uh, what I would describe as almost every dirty trick in the book in order to ensure it didn't have to pay much. Ugh. And it racked up legal costs of £125 million pounds on its law- lawyers, Herbert Smith Freehills, which is a London firm. Oh, my God. And in the end, uh, it settled out, out of court, but it handed over just $1 billion to the investment uh, the investor groups that were trying to sue it because they were scared that if they lost, they'd have to pay all the bank's costs, right. which would, would have been $125 million. But there's evidence that RBS basically did this because they knew they were going to lose and they would have lost far more if they had gone to court and if the case had been uh-huh. court, but they'd also have had to face the ignominy or embarrassment of former senior executives including fred goodwin and johnny cameron having to give evidence in court and you know that could have been well it would have become a you know a national a national story if that had happened it should have been yeah it should have been should have been but it was all about and as i put it in one article, sparing them their blushes. Uh. So uh, that that was a big disappointment for me as a journalist, actually, because and I think for a lot of people in the UK, because 
We would have liked to have actually seen these guys explain themselves in a court with a QC, that's Queen's Counsel, it's a top barrister, you know, cross-examining them and finding out what the hell they were playing they were playing at when they were running the bank. But unfortunately, this, what, what, this, this opportunity never arose. And that's a shame too. What was the cost to the taxpayers to bail this company out? Well, the total cost was 1.3 trillion sterling um, to, to bail out the UK banking sector, which included RBS as the biggest failure and Lloyd's and HBOS and Bradford and Bingley and Alliance and Leicester and other banks. But the, the total cost of the capital that we, we bought in RBS as taxpayers was 45.5 billion pounds sterling. I would say, yeah, you had the people have a right to go demand some answers. <laughs> exactly. And it's one of the reasons I read the book, because I felt if people have had to pay that much money to save a bank, and it's, we're never going to get that back, by the way, you know, unlike in the US where banks paid back their top money, RBS is, is, is unlikely ever to repay that in full, because its share price at the time of the rescue was £5 per share. And and now the bank share price is 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 more like two pounds per share. So there's no way we're ever going to get the 45.5 billion back. But weren't they also supposed to sell off uh, some of their branches in order to kind of like help pay some of that back? Well, they have. They they, they have um, sold off Citizens Financial, including Charter One in the States. They've basically shut down most of their investment banking operations. Mm-hmm. They've sold direct line their insurance company and they have so they've they've closed or sold some of their branches in the uk but but the money doesn't seem to end up in taxpayers pockets no no it doesn't (laughs) (laughs) oh doesn't that always seem to only flow one way (laughs) well that's the trouble yeah Yeah. i mean i suppose it's one of the reasons i wrote the book you know because of rbs's collapse in in october 2008 and the uh, the the wider banking crisis in this country Mm -hmm. which was a exacerbated by New Labour's lax attitude towards regulation from 97 to 2008. Uh, we we actually had a you know, period of austerity in the UK. We had uh, falling real real wages. We had, you know, slashed uh, slashed budgets from local government, mm-hmm. you know, so primary schools and pl- playgrounds closing and libraries closing and community centres closing. And, you know, we call this a period of austerity when basically Tory Lib Dem government was, was, was axing um, expenditure in the UK. And that was a direct consequence of the banking crash of 08. So I felt that people might want to know, you know, why why we were going through that. What was it that had caused um, RBS, which is now called NetWest, mm-hmm. to fail and to to cost um, the country so so dear or so much money? What sort of feedback did you get uh, after you did publish? Well, I think one of the best things I got was actually from um, I, I heard that um, the chief, the new chief risk officer at RBS, who'd come in after the crash, had actually recommended my book on the RBS intranet site saying, everybody in the bank should read this. It's a painful read, but there are a lot of lessons to be learned. And so I was quite grateful that, you know, this guy had actually recommended it on the staff intranet site to all staff. You know, instead of having 250,000 staff, which is what they had at the time of their collapse, they they still had around uh, seventy to 80,000 at that stage. God damn, that is insane. So I was quite pleased. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure how many actually bought it, but maybe some got it out from the library. But uh, I... I was also glad that that uh, the bank was selling. Sorry, the, the the book shredded was selling very well in a branch that in a branch of back. Sorry, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself here. There's a branch of Blackwell's inside the RBS headquarters, which is this vast campus-style HQ west of Edinburgh uh-huh. or Gogoburn, 
And it has its own internal street with, with a florist and with a supermarket and with other shops and a hairdresser. And it, one of the shops is a, is a bookshop called Blackwell's, which is a mainstream uh, bookshop. I don't know what you, the equivalent would be in the States, you know, one with branches all over the country. And, and so this, my book was apparently selling quite well in that shop, and that was good. Um, so huh. selling in the bookshop in the headquarters campus but overall yeah I, I, I was very pleased i had some great reviews i had re- good reviews in the ft and i had good reviews in bloomberg i had good review in um a number of different publications and they were all <laughs> i think they were all very positive I, you know i was I, I was almost overwhelmed and i think one other thing is that i've had these regular emails from rbs staff members who've read it and said they couldn't stand the culture they felt it was just you know there was a toxic um culture inside that bank mm-hmm. and they were they were delighted that i'd written the book and they'd really appreciate it and enjoyed even the book <laughs> i would say uh, wow i mean that's really high praise to have uh, a high level person at the bank recommending your book to to the employees uh, especially when it's critical of the dealings on and everything that led up to it but i only learned that i mean i didn't know that it was just i had a friend who worked there who who saw it and he copied it in an email and sent it to me from his private email address. So if, if nothing else, then he at least made RBS better, it sounds like. Yeah, well, I, well, it, it might have done. But I mean, you do wonder, uh, you know, things that the bank has done some pretty bad things, even after it was saved by the taxpayer. We could go on to if, you, if you've got time. I don't know how long. <laughs> we got time. time. We got t- plenty <laughs> yeah. of time. Well, you know, it was recently found to have been engaged in money, money laundering and accepting. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but Bin liners full of cash. Do you know what a bin liner is? I don't know what you call them there. They're big black uh, plastic. You line your your garbage, garbage can, your garbage with. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Garbage bags. So there were garbage bags of used notes were being delivered by Fowler Oldfield, which is a jeweler and gold dealer based in um, in Bradford in, in north of England. And these were being delivered to an array of NatWest branches who was then taking them in and converting them, you know, accepting them and then giving putting crediting the amount to the the the, the clients' accounts. And so this was going on for many, many months. And uh the bank was criminally prosecuted for this mm. and ended, ended up paying a fine of about 250 million pounds, which is not that high, much less than H- HSBC was, was fined uh, in the States for laundering drug money. Mm-hmm. It was still a major thing. You know, this, this is a bank that you'd have thought that a bank that's been saved by taxpayers might make some effort to improve its culture right. and improve its behavior and not get engaged in these sorts of things. But, um, you know, that was one example. And before that, you, you had things like um, foreign exchange rigging, for which the bank was fined $1.6 billion. You had... Um, foreign exchange... How, oh, yeah, they weren't the only ones either, were they? No, there was a whole cartel of banks which were rigging foreign exchange markets. And they formed different cartels. And one of them was called <laughs> Sterling Lads. Almost three-way banana split. And uh, there was a number of other ones. In total, RBS was fined for all this foreign exchange rigging activity. It was fined a total of $1.6 billion. Uh, and then for rigging LIBOR, um, RBS, which again, this happened after the crash, RBS was fined a total of $1.1 billion. 
dollars. 612 by the CFTC, DOJ, and Financial Conduct Authority, and the rest was by the European Union. So there's, oh, there's things that have been going on. And then, you know, another thing which, which, is, which I feel particularly, which I feel strongly about, is that RBS, um, between 2009 and 2013, deliberately destroyed uh, tens of thousands of UK small and medium-sized companies in order to profit from their demise. And uh, this is this is a really heinous... Uh, kind of like gutting, gutting the companies? Uh, well, seizing their asset, asset stripping, basically, you know. Right. It, yep. it, it particularly valued ones which had freehold properties. So ones that owned their own properties outright and it would use a number of different ploy, a different, uh, sorry, RBS, which is now called NetWest, would um, deploy a number of tactics to basically manufacture defaults, which in, in what were otherwise profitable, credit-worthy companies. Mm. Um, and it would do this by, for example, putting phony valuations on the company's uh, property assets. So if it had a warehouse that was worth, say, Five billion, sorry, not five billion, five million. Um, it might mm-hmm. say this warehouse is actually only worth nine hundred thousand. It would get in a tame firm of chartered surveyors. I don't know whether you call them that, but that's what we call real uh, appraisers. I think here, yeah, appraisers who would who would put a much lower value on the asset, and then RBS could actually claim that that company was in default uh, because its loan to value ratio was below the required. Right level uh, you know basically his asset might be worth worth less than its loan and um and then it could you know basically manufacture uh, having manufactured a d4 put it into this division of rbs called global restructuring group which would then basically uh, siphon out cash through outrageous fees and charges which would bump up interest rates on loans and would use other methods, um, some of which had, had, had been commenced earlier through the missale of things called interest rate hedging products to basically, you know, put the company on its knees so that then the company could be put into administration and the company's uh, assets could be essentially seized by the bank. Okay. And this, this, was, uh, this was partly because the bailout, the $45.5 billion bailout that we put in place in 2008 was discovered not to be sufficient to keep RBS afloat. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, this activity that I'm describing was a way of sort of topping up the bailout at the expense of UK uh, small and medium-sized companies. And um, there's a massive scandal around that. It's been debated in Parliament about uh, at least three or four times. There's been about four BBC programs specifically on it. But in the end of the day, the bank got off pretty much scot-free. And that was partly because we have a uh, what, what we call a captured regulator here who who isn't actually, mm-hmm. who people argue is not that interested in, in rooting out malpractice or and or fraud within the banking sector. So... Yeah, I could say a lot more about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, wow. that's terrible. Yeah, well, is there ever been a, a scenario where they've done that to like uh, individual homeowners, someone who owns a mortgage, like the bank coming in and saying, "Hey, your house isn't worth that much now. You need to pay back your mortgage, or I'm taking your house." I'm sure. I'm sure there are cases. I mean, there's a separate thing. I mean, by the way, just on this. Um, global restructuring group scandal. You know, I've had people on the phone in, in tears, you know, grown men who have run businesses for 30 years and built up a successful business who have f- suddenly found for no reason other than the bank misbehaving that they've lost their, their life's work and, you know, right. and often 
you know, they're ostracized by their community because of it, because the, the community thinks that they're they're to fault they're they're at fault. Right. And and the bank also tries to isolate people. So, you know, in the early stages of all this, the the, the individual borrower would, would would think, Oh, it's it must be me, you know, it must be my fault. Um and it was only once certain journalists, including me, started to expose that this was going on at, you know, a much wider level that um People realised they weren't on their own, but there've been suicides. You know, there've been there've been um, some there've been marriage breakdowns. There's been mental breakdowns. There's been some horrible fallout as a consequence of of what happened with Global Restructuring Group, and you know they behaved like mafiosi actually. And that is that to me is appalling. That a bank that's been rescued by the taxpayer, even after it's been rescued. Should um, should treat its own customers and the people who saved it, i.e., British taxpayers, um, in this sort of way. And what is even more appalling is that it's managed to get away with it. Hmm. Where are those meddling kids when you need them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're you probably don't watch Scooby Doo over there. <laughs> yeah, I used to watch that when I was a kid, ages ago. It's not a ghost. It was Fred Goodwin all along. <laughs> <laughs> Fred Goodwin and these matchsticks in a spotlight. <laughs> yeah, we need we need them. We, we need we need them back. We need Scooby Doo. Oh, yes, somebody. I mean, the other thing which is all part of that is this this signature forgery issue, which um, you had um, Robo signing, and um, I think in the end there was some settlements with that. Um, that was after the banking crisis in, in the states. We we had something called signature forgery. And it includes document falsification. And um, a guy I know who's himself a victim of a bank, he has assembled a dossier of evidence of about 700 plus cases, which, which are properly documented, showing that UK banks have forged the signatures of customers on official documents, including loan agreements and um, uh, in other things related to that, like PPI, which is personal protection insurance um, applications. So basically, the, bank, the banks appear to have engaged in industrial-scale signature forgery oh um, in order to pretend, in some cases, that customers have agreed to, to take out certain products, which could be loans. <laughs> and, uh, and RBS, I'm afraid, is among, is among them. So wow. Jul- Julian, Watts has, Julian Watts is the guy. He started something called the bank signature forgery campaign, which you can find on Twitter. But the, the depressing thing about that is also, is I think, in the States, if someone came with over 700 criminal case uh, cases of signature forgery, which is proven in, in some cases by graphologists, to the main, hmm. the appropriate re- regulator, the crime-fighting agency, would, and they would be the FBI or, or uh, something like that, <laughs> SEC, you know, you'd have thought the regulators yeah. might actually prick up their ears and say, "Hey, this looks quite bad. We better, we better have a look." Right? Um, and you would assume <laughs> actually that would happen in the United States, but here it's been uh, the there's a body called the National Crime Agency, which is um, a UK-wide crime-fighting force, which has had this evidence mm-hmm. for two and a half years and has done absolutely nothing. It's just sat on it. Wow. There's a lot of uh, people wa- wondering, you know, why is it, why is it, why is it not interested? Right. Does the NCA see its role 
as to protect uh, the banking sector? Or are they just, is it, is it too hard for them to get their heads around? Or do they not believe the evidence? Or, or does it just take that long to put a case together? Or well, maybe, maybe. If Jared was there, they'd do it a lot quicker. Jared Bibler. <laughs> I would really? think so. But I know here that with the SEC is regularly, you see judgments and fines and things come out for things that happened two, three years ago. Yeah. Well, that is true. But you'd have thought they would at least contact, if they were going to investigate, they would have at least contacted some of the witnesses. Yeah, you would think. Even that hasn't happened yet so we'll have to see what's that what's that famous quote dan by thomas jefferson about banks can't trust them i don't know uh, <laughs> oh here it is uh he said that i believe the banking indus- institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies oh so that in 1802 it's amazing wow it's amazingly true right. even, even today yes you get a form of financial tyranny you know where where banks basically are in cahoots with the government and because the government the 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 government may or may not be captured by the banking sector through donations or through other forms of uh, lobbying. And where you have a regulator whose who's kind of interests are, are too closely aligned with the banking sector. Does it help to have the royal in your name too? Like, does that basically say like the, uh, the government's condoning you or like you're the chosen bank? I think there is something in that. You know, when the bank, when the bank got that title in 1727, when it was founded, it, it certainly gave it a greater mm-hmm. legitimacy than its main rival here in Scotland, which Bank of Scotland, because the royal made it seem as if it was appointed by the queen or the king at that time. Right. So yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure it does. <laughs> you know, I think the, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland should have had its um, royal statute removed when Fred Goodwin has, had his knighthood removed, but uh, it, it never happened. They still have it? They still have a royal what? They still have it. <laughs> After all this, they still have it. They have actually changed their group name because they think RBS is now so tainted they can't carry on with that as their group name. They did change their group name in July 2020 to NatWest. Yep. So that was in some ways seen as a bad day for Scotland, but I don't think many Scots... <laughs> I think Scotland would be happy to turn the page on this whole thing. Well, that's true. A lot, a lot or at of, least write the ending. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of people actually felt we we don't really give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> well, well, no. Sorry, there, there, I think there were, there were some people in Scotland who were disappointed that you know what had been what once was a great bank, and it was till mm-hmm. about the eighties or nineties. You know that this great bank had. Had had it had to, had had to lose its name and become NatWest, but for a lot of people who actually know what it's been up to over the past two decades, yeah, it was no it was no loss. That's yeah. <laughs> which 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 bank doesn't do all this stuff? Is there is there any that you know of? I I think that all banks get engaged in sort of various shenanigans over over yeah, time. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. <laughs> yeah, I think they all do to some extent or another. I mean, with Wells Fargo, I was absolutely amazed about that. Um, what, what was it they were doing? I mean, that was a form of signature forgery, wasn't it? They were opening current accounts without fake current accounts without people knowing, just so they could oh, get extra, extra. Do you know that story with Wells Fargo? Yeah, no, they, I didn't hear that. They charged them yeah, for the accounts that they were opening without their knowledge. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh, Jesus. So that was a, maybe a classic case. And I think a lot of it boils down to incentives. If you incentivize your people, your staff right. to sell more more product, like more current accounts or whatever, mm-hmm. then they are going to cut corners and they will miss sell, which we have this crazy word called miss sell 
which means <laughs> sell something which somebody doesn't want, but it's really fraud, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> um, there, there is a real risk that incentives given to either investment bankers or incentives given to retail bankers, who are the ones who work in the branches or in the call centers, to sell more product, mm -hmm. the overall yeah. outcome is, is going to be bad for consumers who will end up with products they don't need or products that, that, or that they didn't ask for. That they didn't ask for at all, or which will charge them outrageous fees for, you know, for a shoddy service. So yeah, but there are, you know, there are definitely some banks that are worse, better than others. And a bank which does stop paying bonuses and stop paying, paying incentive payments to its own staff is almost certainly going to behave better. And one bank that has done that, I'm sure there are others, one bank that has stopped those payments is Handelsbank. Mm -hmm. And so it is more on focused on service than sales. And I think that is the way to go. You know, that that's how banking should be moving. But the trouble is mm -hmm. whether whether the bank can keep its investors happy by doing that. And can they keep their employees happy too? Well that's that's the other the other thing. But I think um it's working at Handelsbank and I need to know more about how it works, but it does seem to work. People aren't leaving. In fact, you know, a lot of people who got jaundiced by the unethical behavior of certain other UK banks had now work at Handelsbank and they're they're much happier. They might they may be they may be earning slightly less, but they're not um, they're not poor. I'd take a slightly less paycheck for a guaranteed one. Yes, over the bigger <laughs> one, but never knowing if you're going to hit it. Yeah, so maybe that is the way forward. I don't know. I think it's Warren Buffett who says, you know, incentives drives. Um, I wish I could remember the quote, but it it is it is the key you know, to, to, to a lot of the malpractice in the financial sector, you know, the whopping bonus for the, for just uh, selling one um, hedging product, which might cripple your customer, but might make your bank a 1 million day one profit. You know, the temptation is, oh, I'll take the 1 million day one profit. And I don't really care if I cripple my customer. I, I, I can't remember what, which strand we were on to now, but um, <laughs> I think we're yeah. talking about uh, trying to find a bank we could trust, but Right, yeah, sounds right. like uh, that might be an exercise in futility. Well, I, I do think some some of the some of the Singapore banks will be worth a look um, because they have better regulators in Singapore. Just don't litter there. <laughs> yeah, don't litter their pavements. No graffiti. Don't, don't be rude about <laughs> that. Guy. Yeah, yeah, it's that either. <laughs> <laughs> No graffiti and don't be rude about the government and then you'll be fine. Yeah. But that strictness makes for good banks then, huh? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> the, there's one particular bank, I think it's called DB, DBS, which I don't know. I mean, it seems to be doing some very interesting stuff. What's called fintech, you know, with online and dig and mobile apps, mm -hmm. which are ahead of the game. So there are there are there are some new mobile app type banks in the UK, which one of which is called Starling, which do seem to be slightly more ethical. So there is hope. You know, it's not it's not all bad. That's good to hear. <laughs> it's starting to get a little doom and gloom there for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, Jared Biebler also was an advocate for incentivizing uh, auditors and regulators with with like maybe some bounties. Yes. Yes. I think that would be a huge step in the right direction if you want to actually try to root out and stop some of these nefarious activities. Yeah, because at the moment our regulators are not paid very much. They're paid about a quarter of 
or one third of what they'd get for the same job in a bank. They're understaffed. Yeah, and they want to be soft on the banks because then they will get a better paid job as a risk officer or chief risk officer yep. with the bank that they're regulating. And I can think of numerous examples actually where a senior regulator within the UK financial regulator, which is called the Financial Conduct Authority and was the Financial Services Authority, has um, has basically swept a, fr- a massive fraud under the carpet or alleged an alleged massive fraud under the rug at the regulator mm-hmm. and then a, then a few weeks later suddenly they get offered a job on say three million pounds per annum as a chief risk officer <laughs> for the bank which they've just buried the fraud for and I, there are cases, and I know of several cases where that exact scenario has happened didn't we see that Janet Yellen was like getting paid like ridiculous speaking fees for talking to uh, some of the people that she's supposed to be regulating now well, that is just ridiculous. She shouldn't. She shouldn't be accepting those, and she shouldn't be doing it. I think it was before she she took her position, or at least I hope it was. But I, I could be getting my timelines mixed up. It's in in between positions. Yeah, but e- even even that is dangerous because you know. Oh yes. If you get like quarter of a million pounds for speaking for half an hour to Citigroup conference, some Citigroup conference, you know, you're going to mem- remember that money. It's quite a lot. Oh yeah. And uh, yep. you know, are you actually going to really pull out all the, all the stops if you discover some frauds within Citigroup? You're not, yeah, you're not going to want to jeopardize your your livelihood, your friendship. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that exactly, Dan. <laughs> yeah, we, we we did have something very similar with HSBC, which is the biggest bank in the UK, mm-hmm. and you know they basically threatened to move their head office from London to to Hong Kong, back to their home city of Hong Kong. Um, unless um, the government eased off on, on, on the regulatory tightening that was then going on. So they, they had about six points which they wanted, and they gradually ticked them off. The government basically, I, th- I think, succumbed to lobbying and or pressure from HSBC mm-hmm. and diluted the ring fence, which was proposed, and, and diluted the senior manager's regime, and diluted various other hard li- harder proposals for toughening up bank regulation. Reduced fees for money laundering. Yeah, those sorts of things. <laughs> and, uh, and, and amazingly enough, at the end of that process, HSB decided, hey, we're going to stay in Britain. And then they gave the, then the chancellor who'd overseen it, a guy called George Osborne, who was the chancellor of the Exchequer through that process, they, they gave him a speaking fee uh, to talk at Davos in, in uh, Switzerland at the, at the World Economic Forum. Oh. And I can't remember <laughs> what it was, but it was, it was, it was short of £50,000 for the ex-chancellor at that time right. to speak, at the, uh, to speak um, at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, at oh, that was nice of them. They must have just had really good relationship. Yeah, it had absolutely nothing to to do with the fact that you know he'd done anything for them in the past. Of course, right. Of course. <laughs> Ian, well, what, what's next for you now? Then, what you got any other plans coming up? Uh, is there anything else that uh, you got on the horizon coming up? Well, I've got a couple of books about banking which I've been asked to do, but I, I, I'm not. Um, I, I'm not uh, starting them quite yet because they're. I need a bit after after shredded. I needed a break from banking. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean shredded is almost a decade long project. Yeah. It sounds like it's too long. I, I want it to be shorter. But anyway, I am working on a book about the history of Scottish industrial and commercial success. Mm. So looking at um, from 1707, the year we we uh, formed a union with England. Mm-hmm. 
to the present day, what were the drivers of Scotland's commercial and industrial success? It once made about 40% of the locomotives for the entire world were made in Glasgow, and about 30% of the ships for the entire world were made in Glasgow. And, you know, there's other oh, success, wow. successful sectors like textiles and publishing. You know, HarperCollins is a Scottish company. So looking at what were the factors that gave rise to, the, to this commercial industrial and industrial success, but then looking at what caused the, de- the decline, because we had a bit of a decline <laughs> in Scotland, I guess, uh, well, it really, it arguably started in the 1890s when Germany's, German ships began to be, get better than ours. Mm-hmm. And uh, diesel locomotives came in in about the 1950s, and the, so the steam trains weren't so popular. So looking at the reasons for the, the, the decline from, uh, I guess, it really kicked in, in in about the 1920s and looking for the, at the reasons for that. But it's it's quite a, a long project because I'm, I'm trying to find examples of individual entrepreneurs and or companies which illustrate each of the reasons for the success and failure and decline. But in the last bit of the book, I'm looking at um, what uh, are the chinks of light on the horizon in terms of, you know, what are the future sectors where Scotland might excel? And one of those is computer games, where we have a very strong computer gaming sector in Dundee, which is a town and city in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of things, you know, we're quite, we're, even though we've lost our banks now, we, we've got we saw a very healthy fund management sector based in Scotland. And we have the biggest exporter is Scotch whiskey, uh, which is thriving. You know, they, they sell five billion pounds of oh, yeah. Scotch a year to to all the world markets. Well, you know, to, to, well, to, nobody can go outside. What else is left to do? Yeah. <laughs> they, should be, they should be killing it. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, that, and that in itself is an ancient industry. You know, they started distilling that stuff in the Middle Ages, but they started to kind of put brands on it like Johnny Walker. McCallum's. Yeah, and McCallum in the 1820s. So it was the Victorians who made it, who started branding it and selling it internationally. Mm-hmm. But, but I could, the, the trouble is that the, I was asked to do this book and I'd love to do something quite focused just on, say, Scotch whiskey, because that in itself is a fascinating industry. But my, my publisher wants a much broader book looking at all the different sectors. <laughs> of course <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> just do all of them. It'll be, it'll be easy. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I wish it was. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Dan, you want to uh, yeah. take us home here? Probably getting pretty late there. We're running long as it is. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Ian. This has been amazing. I'm so glad you got a chance to come by and uh, and talk with us today. Thank you again for coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's been great fun. I Yeah, I think I've... Sorry, this is me talking for the recording. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. And, you know, I hope I've, I've managed to explain some of the intricacies of uh, British banking and what went wrong with it to your, to your many listeners. I think you did a fantastic job. And we've also got, uh, we'll have links for the book, Shredded Inside RBS, The Bank That Broke Britain. Great. Uh, we'll have links for that in the episode description. And Ian, is there uh, anything else that you want to share before we uh, turn the mics off, shut the lights down? Kick you out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just like to say you're you're doing a great job. I, I love what you do. I think you've done some great podcasts. Oh, thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We left the mic. We left the recordings on for that one too. That's the first time <laughs> I managed to do that. Oh, sweet. <laughs> All right, that's going right. in the ad right there. And you made them funny as well, which is you know that finance isn't often isn't usually funny, but you do you do make it funny, and I think that's quite that's great. I, and I don't I don't know how well I did in terms of making RBS funny. It probably made it seem quite. I funny. was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> 
you handled yourself well. Yeah, well, mostly they're quite quite tragic, yeah. but there are lots of funny bits. There's a three joke minimum, Ian, and you only hit two, so we won't be asking you back. Uh, sorry, that <laughs> bullshit. All right, folks. Uh, until next time, we'll be coming back at you soon. Uh, happy trades. <laughs> Bye. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.